0: Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the
1: International Campaign for Tibet. You're about to hear the recording of a live conversation with Dr. Rick Hansen from May 28, 2020. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Hello, everyone. Tashi Dele, and welcome to Tibet Talks. I'm Denshi Gyatso, Director of Outreach at International for Tibet, and it's my uh, pleasure to host uh, Tibet Talks today. In this series, you'll hear live conversations about Tibet with inspiring thinkers, leaders, activists, and artists. Uh, with the f- world facing a historic crisis, we at ICT wanted to share with you some of the wisdom of Tibetan culture and the teachings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, that can inspire and guide us through these times. For today's episode, we have a very special guest who's joining us all the way from the West Coast, from San Rafael, California. He is a psychologist, Uh, he is a senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and he's a New York Times bestselling author. His many books include Buddha's Brain, Hardwiring Happiness, Mother Nurture, his first, and his latest, uh, Neurodharma. He has lectured and featured all around the world, and his books are available in 29 languages. And we're delighted to have him here today. And in this conversation, he'll discuss with us how gratitude makes you strong and how uh, Tibet has been an inspiration for him. Uh, Please join me as I welcome our speaker of the hour, Dr. Rick Hansen. Dr. Dr. Hansen, welcome to Tibet Talks.
1: Oh, thank you very much, and it is an honor and a pleasure to be here, and greetings to everyone who is participating uh, in this uh, program through the wonders of modern technology, something that the Dalai Lama, of course, has been very interested in his whole life.
2: Yes, indeed, uh, Rick, that's very true. And uh, also joining us today, we have uh, ICT President Matteo Macacci. So, Matteo, welcome also. Hello, Tancho,
0: hello, Rick. Good to see you. Thank you, Tancho, and thank you, thank you very much, Rick, for joining us today, um, both on Facebook Live and uh, on our website. I'm sure that our supporters and members will very much appreciate knowing you more. I guess many of them already know your work, uh, but we at ICT are very grateful mm-hmm. that you have been one of our members for for many years, one of our supporters. Yeah. And we have been talking over the years and you have been very generous sure. also in sharing with your uh, you know, clients and people who follow your work uh, the work that ICT does. So we, we, we appreciate that. And in a way, we wanted to return the favor and offer also to our members the opportunity to learn more about you and your work. So uh, I think we can start with, uh, you know, hearing from you instead of hearing from me. And my first question would be really to, to tell us uh, how did you learn, you know, how did you first learn about Tibet? If you recall, you know, what you know struck you about that and why uh, it matters to you till today?
1: oh thank you um i'm not sure i can mark a particular time i heard about tibet i mean i think as a teenager i had a vague idea of shangri-la some sort of magical kingdom in the upper himalayas vaguely somewhere but then i when i was introduced to buddhism uh when i was 21 in 1974 at the last year of college Tibetan teachings were certainly part of the mix, along with Zen and the Theravadan tradition, the early teachings of the Buddha. So that's probably where it began. I was also somewhat aware of the political situation there, uh, the invasion and occupation from the Chinese army, the Chinese government, and everything around that, and the dramatic stories of the Dalai Lama's own escape as a teenager himself from from his own country. So I had some sense of that and then yeah. over the, as the years have passed and and I've become more knowledgeable about buddhism and also more aware of the political historical complexities here my admiration for tibet its culture its people uh and its um traditions really and the ways in which it is uh, safeguarded some of the most beautiful treasures of wisdom uh on this planet my respect for it and my sense of um, Gratitude, really, which will be a topic today. My Gratitude for Tibet and, and its people has certainly just grown over the years.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, that's, I think, I mean, that that's interesting. And I think, you know, if I can say probably most of people have heard, you know, Tibet in one of those ways, you know, learning yeah. about these you know, mythical place on the Himalayas, et cetera. Uh, but you, I think over the years, you have gone much further than that uh, because you have been able, I think, through your profession to go uh, deeper uh, into, you know, understanding, you know, the knowledge of Tibetan teachings. And I and I find uh, what you have done to be really very, very important uh, for today's time because the, the Dalai Lama for many decades has tried to foster a dialogue between modern scientists and Tibetan Buddhist you know, masters and teachers uh, to try to see the connections between these yeah. kind of teachings. And I think, you know, I will ask you a little bit more later with your, you know, more formal presentation, but actually all your, all your work, but even your latest work has really focused on that. So what does it mean as a psychologist, you know, for you, you know, the Dalai Lama, what does he represent as, mm. you know, his teachings and his way of approaching these uh, issues Uh, informed or influenced the way you
1: have uh, right uh, Um, so I I have learned a lot like many people have from the work of the Mind and Life Institute as well as the research of people like Richie Davidson Antoine Lutz uh, teachers such as Mathieu Ricard uh, people who've really developed this territory so I want to absolutely respect Um, you know, their contributions and the ways in which they have really been in the lead in this territory. Um, As a psychologist functioning inside the natural frame, it's called, of ordinary reality, which includes a lot of exotic things like quantum physics and black holes and all the rest of that. And, of course, beautiful creatures like zebras and and lizards and mice. It includes all of that. Um, Whatever may be beyond ordinary reality, the supernatural, the transcendental, the divine, okay. But certainly within the natural frame of science, clinical psychology, it's really clear that the deep calm and compassion and resilience that we observe in the Dalai Lama, we observe in others who have practiced, we observe in people outside of the Tibetan or Buddhist tradition, certainly. Yeah. There's no monopoly course, uh, in Buddhism yeah. or in Tibetan Buddhism, obviously, of deep calm, compassion, resilience, and wisdom. That said, what we observe in them, and I will tell you a story in a moment of my personal experience with the Dalai Lama, uh, what we observe in them must fundamentally involve underlying structures and processes in our own bodies, particularly in our nervous systems and its brain. So it's been a very fertile area of investigation to look at the brains of people with 30,000 years of meditation practice, or who are able to just self-generate tremendous waves of compassion uh, for everyone, including those who are oppressing them. What's going on in their brains when they're doing that? And then how can we learn from that ourselves, which is my major focus? How can we learn from that ourselves in applied ways to get those neural structures and neural processes really cooking, really going, So that gradually we hardwire those qualities into ourselves based on lasting physical changes in our nervous system. So that's been a a great interest of mine. And to do that well, we need to study, as Richie Davison has put it, the Olympic athletes of mental training, such as the Dalai (laughs) Lama himself doing many hours a day of practice, uh, as well as others in those traditions. And then we can reverse engineer backwards, even at our level, whatever it may be, wherever we are in the path, how can we be more like that ourselves and gradually establish those ways of being um, in a very embodied way so that that's increasingly who we are. Yeah, That's the opportunity here, and it's a marvelous one. And the Dalai Lama has really been in the forefront of championing that intersection really between profound perennial wisdom and the most recent, most effective applied brain science.
0: Great. Very interesting. And so your latest work that Potential mentioned oh, yeah. is uh, neurodharma.
1: Yeah, you, and the picture is great. you got to show the mountain. To oh, me, yeah, the yeah, mountain is right. my, yeah, I'm yeah, a long-time yeah, right. mountain guy. I've been a rock climber, and I just think, what a great metaphor, you know, we start here, but we can learn from people up here, right? And then we, we can, can, in our own way, find our own ways up the mountain, and, you bet. And
0: actually, as you show it, I, I wanted to just to, to read the, you know, the, the just a couple of sentences in the, in the jacket cover of the book. Yeah. Uh, throughout history, people have sought the heights of human potential to become as wise and strong, happy and loving as any person can ever be. And now recent science is revealing how these remarkable ways of being are based on equally remarkable changes in our own nervous system, making them more attainable than ever before. Yes. I think that summarizes, you know, most of what you said, and I think many of the things that, you know, he's always the Dalai Lama has been saying uh, for a long time. And I think it's it's a, it's a very uh, interesting time for people uh, who are not, you know, pretty much, you know, involved in religion, for example, or are do not consider themselves, you know, belonging to any particular religion to find that there's right. maybe some common thread that actually can unite science and spirituality and so with that i would like to to give it to you for your you know talk and presentation to to explore those uh, those issues
1: well thank you for saying that and to be clear i want to underline two things that you just said there Matteo. one is that what we are exploring is universal for example whatever is ultimate reality is universal and then inside ordinary reality There's the universal human DNA, the universal human brain, and the universal challenge of suffering that we all face. Old age, disease, death, loss, plagues, injustice, oppression. We face all of it. And so what we learn from people who in one tradition have gone very far up the mountain is relevant to anyone who wants to progress up the so-called mountain of awakening and develop in themselves uh, seven qualities I explore in the book to develop greater steadiness of mind, warmth of heart, equanimity, present moment awareness, feeling of connection with everything, and so on. And that's great, the, the universal application of, of these methods and the ways in which they're not monopolized by any tradition. And the second thing you said that I really want to underline is that we live in a time in which there is an unprecedented opportunity, number one, to get easy access to all the wisdom traditions of the world. We don't have to walk for six months to find our way to (laughs) one particular monastery and then stay there for the rest of our life, right? We have access with a click of a mouse to everything. And what's also unprecedented is the intersection, the growing intersection of profound spiritual and contemplative wisdom as well with modern neuropsychology. That's historically completely unprecedented. and We have the capacity now to move back and forth from the so-called first, third-person perspective outside in of science, the objective nature of the body, and move back into the first-person perspective, the inside-out perspective of our own minds, and move back and forth and start to appreciate in our practice as we have experiences, oh, that's what my brain is doing right now. And now I increasingly understand what it's doing and why. And based on the deeper understanding of the hardware, I can be more skillful in guiding it to a better place. So I want to talk about a key way to do that related yes. to gratitude. Yes. And um, segue, if I could, in reading a little Dalai Lama story here. Uh, and I'll add a thing that's not in the book. So if you've got the book, this is special because it's not in the book. <laughs> so... Um, this is in the chapter that's the, about the second of seven ways of being that we, I talk about cultivating, warming the heart, the cultivation of compassion and love. So here we go. About 20 years ago, I had the good fortune of joining the board at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and soon after that, receiving an invitation to hear the Dalai Lama speak there at a conference. Since he's the head of state of Tibet, there was a high level of security around him. And guards with guns at this nonviolent Buddhist thunder, guards with guns smiled and joked in the carnival like atmosphere. Hundreds of people mingled together, Tibetans as well as teachers and monastics from Europe and America, most of us giddy with the occasion. With many others, I filed into a large room to await the Dalai Lama. After a few minutes, he entered with his translator and another man. He spoke mainly in English with his usual combination of friendliness, directness, and calm intelligence. Little side story, at one point he turned to the people in the room, about 100, 150 people, many senior teachers in the room, and he made a reference to a particular important text from Tibet, and he said, of course you know about such and such book from such and such teacher. Most of the people in the room, me included, had no idea and we were all, uh, like, feeling really guilty like schoolchildren, you know, and the teacher yeah. points out that we haven't read the textbook. And he just stared at everyone for a moment and then said, hmm. That's all he did. He just looked and went, hmm. <laughs> and we all felt really chastised by the Dalai Lama. But yeah. that's all he did. He, would, he wasn't mean. He wasn't nasty. He just said that thing. Yeah, hmm. And then he said, you know, it's good to practice, but we also need to study. We need to understand things. Otherwise, and then he made this gesture, and the photographers put his picture on the front page of the newspaper the next morning. He said, otherwise, you are like a mouse, just a mouse. You may be happy, but you know nothing. Yeah. Right? Like that. And that gesture, that, that like a mouse with ears, you know, that's what came on the newspaper. Right? So to continue then, yeah. I write, At the time, I thought he gave a marvelous talk, but I don't remember any of it. What I do remember is the other man who came in with him. He was dressed in a gray suit and seemed unassuming, standing off to the side in the front of the room, looking at everyone and smiling. After a while, I watched him more closely. He stood at ease like a dancer, filling out his suit like someone who'd been a linebacker on a small college football team, smiling and smiling with eyes that kept scanning the room. I realized he was the Dalai Lama's bodyguard, The last line of defense there was no sense of threat from him he radiated a feeling of happiness and love meanwhile it was clear he was completely capable standing there wishing everyone well with hands relaxed at his sides and eyes that never stopped moving i've thought of him many times since for me he embodied practicing with a warm heart he had a job to do and it included a readiness to be strong and assertive if need be but he was not aggressive or hostile this teaching from the dhammapada described him well one is not wise because one speaks much one is wise who is peaceable friendly and fearless yeah thank you so how do we develop those qualities how do we develop that capacity as an individual whether you're the bodyguard for the Dalai Lama or in everyday life right now with an epidemic, a plague sweeping slowly but surely, not so slowly sometimes, through the human species right now, including America, my own country. Um, how do we practice with that? How do, we, how do we practice with others who don't wear a mask, let's say, and you know potentially make us sick or make us sick who will make someone else sick who might be old and die, right? How can we practice with that? Or Scaled up, how can we be a whole people, the Tibetan people, who really, to me, exemplify in their long, long relationship with the Chinese government, um, they themselves exemplify people who are peaceable, friendly, and fearless. How do we develop that? One way that science is increasingly showing that we can develop, it's not the only way, but it's a major way to develop that kind of resilience, That kind of resilient well-being in which one protects an unshakable core of inner peace and inner um, love, no matter what others are doing, no matter what the conditions are around us. One major way into that is the practice of thankfulness, the practice of gratitude. Gratitude does not overlook or lie about or decrease the reality of suffering in the world, injustice, terrible things. Uh, for me, the frame that I'm speaking here of is really has three simple steps that we take again and again. Deal with the bad and turn to the good and take in the good. So deal with the bad for sure. But also, what can we be thankful for alongside it? I'm thankful, Matteo, deeply thankful for the international campaign for Tibet. I'm deeply thankful for the wisdom holders who have protected wisdom uh, in the Buddhist tradition for 2,500 years, as well as I'm deeply grateful for people who protected wisdom around the world and other traditions. I'm deeply grateful for the frontline healthcare workers. I'm grateful for the people that are pushing brooms down the hallways of hospitals at 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for people who um, are staying at home to take care of others. Uh, you know, there are many, many things we can be grateful for. I'm thankful for the beauty of the flowers over your shoulder and just mm-hmm. the amazing generosity, right? That's my and wife. Nature. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm grateful for my wife. You're probably grateful for your wife. I am. Um, and, I, you know, so the point is what science tells us is that when we experience authentic gratitude, not as a so-called spiritual bypass, we want to recognize the bad, the problems, and so forth. But when we have a sense of thankfulness. What that draws us into is the truth of our dependence, because we're thankful for gifts. We're not so much thankful for a paycheck. We earn our paycheck. It's not a gift to us. We're glad we have a paycheck, right? But it's not exactly gratitude. It's more like gladness. Gratitude involves the vulnerability of receiving something that's given to us. We offer thanks for it. and. that teaches us our fundamental interdependence with each other, which is a very important lesson for this time, right? We're vulnerable Mm -hmm. to a plague because we're social mammals. We must deal with this plague also as a group focused on the common good. So gratitude takes us into a recognition of our dependence upon and the ways in which we're supported by all of life. And in the moment of gratitude, through the release of neurochemicals like dopamine and the natural opioids inside us, sometimes along with, especially if we're grateful to others, flows of oxytocin, that particular neurochemical in the brain. When we are experiencing those things, it calms down the stress response. It makes us more resilient in the moment. It makes us stronger in the moment. And one of the major findings of research on people who've gone through terrible situations, including in being in combat, Is that the ones who come through it who are less likely to suffer PTSD went into it with a greater sense of meaning and and thankfulness and gratitude, including for the camaraderie they share with, you know, other people.
0: Hmm.
1: So to summarize a lot of this, uh, no matter how bad it is, one of the great teachings for me from the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people is this unshakable capacity to recognize what is also true. And to hold on to that most fundamental freedom in our own hearts, the inner temple of our of our innermost being, the capacity to recognize other things that are also true. You know, amidst the oppression, amidst the loss, there can be a recognition of beauty, there can be a recognition of the goodness of others, there can be a recognition of the sincerity and bodhicitta and, and yeah. the goodness, let's say, in one's own heart. And in the recognition of that. We calm down the stress response, and as we repeatedly internalize those experiences of gratitude, uh, we engage what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, and we turn states into traits. We keep those neurons firing together so they wire together as well, and we gradually can develop traits of gratitude, not just passing experiences, not just passing Mm -hmm. states of gratitude, but we develop what people call an attitude of gratitude gradually that's literally hardwired into our own nervous system. And that is full of, pardon me, full of opportunity, full of opportunity, including the worse it is. Gratitude is not just for vacations or that one meditation retreat a year you might do or in your life. Gratitude serves the people who are most mistreated who have the hardest lives of all. The harder our lives, the more the world is kicking us in the teeth, the more important it is to be thankful for the good that remains, including the good inside our own heart.
0: Yeah, that's that's really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, as you were talking, I was, uh, <clears throat> I was reflecting uh, what you said you know, about people who are suffering the most. And, you know, working at ICT, naturally, we think about, you know, the Tibetan people in Tibet who have been under, you know, Chinese rule for over 60 years now. They've been going through different waves of repression from the complete destruction of the, you know, cultural revolution to more, you know, Opening times, you know, some, you know, more tolerance for, you know, allowing some kind of cultural activities to take place, you know, in the 80s, in late 70s, in the 80s. And now with Xi Jinping, actually, it looks like we're going back to full, you know, uh, repression. And what they now say, cynicization, they want everything needs to look Chinese. If You you know, if you, you even if you are a different civilization, different people, et cetera. Uh, but at the same time, one thing that, you know, uh, we, we always say that despite the oppression, despite the violence, the incarceration and all of that, I mean, the Tibetan people have not resorted to violence as a response. Right. And if you look from the political point of view or the geopolitical point of view, you may look at these and say, well, you know, that may be good, but it doesn't work. Right, it can be seen as weak. So, can you can you explain? You know, I think you gave already a, a good explanation. But actually, if you don't react to violence with violence, why are you stronger? Or why can you be stronger in the face of eating?
1: These are deep questions, and I am um, a professional psychologist. You know, I, I have some expertise about the mind and the brain, and it, it's appropriate to speak from that. These this starts to move into questions that I would say are ones about which I, I want to be modest in my response. Um, what I would say is that at the individual level, I think we all know the suffering and harm, including the harms that come back to haunt us if we allow hatred uh, to invade our heart and if we allow aspects of cruelty and, um, ill will the buddha spoke against ill will he called it the will to harm the will to hurt yes. rather than the will to construct to develop to grow to nourish i think we can all speak we can all recognize that and some of the people that i've um, been most uh, touched by actually have been american soldiers who've come back uh, from serving in iraq or afghanistan And there's a wound inside their heart related to what they were forced to do. Uh, It can really weigh on people. That seems very clear. And that also seems really clear that in my example of the Dalai Lama's bodyguard, which seems very relevant to what you're talking about here, and the deep teaching that one is wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless. So we can retain a fundamental fearlessness inside ourselves even with anxiety around the edges yeah but there's a fundamental courage and serenity no matter what that is unconditional it's not based on conditions we cultivate that over time or we find it inside ourselves over time either way we're more able to stand in it okay um separate from that well let me just put it this way while we stay grounded in that sense of peaceableness and friendliness and fearlessness um, it helps us deal with oppression you know okay. just to yeah. rest in that ourselves uh, even if we look out and we think they have the guns they have the power or if i stand up they will destroy my village i cannot afford to do this even if i want to even if i want if i want to push back physically It will make things terribly worse being able to take refuge in that innermost core that is also nourished by gratitude that's really really useful yeah now separately at the complex level of um revolutions and resistance and violence and so forth i just think it's very complicated and um Mm. I have wondered, to be really quite honest, I mean, I'm an American. I mean, my country emerged through violence, through a revolution that uh, involved guns and, and knives and, and many bloody deaths. And uh, our own civil war involved a lot of violence to preserve the union that we have and to um, eventually get rid of slavery and, um So who am I to say that people should not take up arms against their oppressors? And uh, so that's a very complicated question. Uh, I think that uh, we've seen um, armed insurrections brutally suppressed around the world. Um, The hands of American foreign policy are not clean either. It's complicated. It's a mess. So there are things I, I don't know about, but I can tell you this. I do know that the cultivation of a core of being inside us that is peaceable, friendly, and fearless is a wise and useful thing to do. Yeah. That Absolutely. I am very sure about.
0: That's, and, I, and I think that's a, that's a very deep teaching. For, for, for all of us, you know, wherever we live, uh, wherever the circumstances in which we are, you know, we are not living under oppression, but we have our own challenges. We, are, we, yeah. we all have our own enemies in our life, yeah. you know, and how do we deal with them is important. But just going back briefly to to Tibetan Buddhists, we, you know, there are some stories and examples and even books written by some of the Tibetan monks who have been incarcerated in China. And have been detained for you know 15 years 20 years you know
1: torture along the yes
0: way. and and they practice compassion and they have come out there some of those are uh, one is you know garcher he's, he's a teacher who's in uh, in the united states you know mm. who, who had his life marked by that and uh, so you know it's 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 your, it's, your, it's also your individual karma it's the collective karma who knows right as a nation yeah. what we need to go through but these are very very important examples i think for all of us as we deal with our lives uh, because there are ways in which we can improve uh, the life of ourselves and our families and our community by looking at those examples and i think yeah. uh, what you what you do with your work it's really important because it's a language which is more familiar to many of us maybe that we are not born in asia or we are not yeah. you know we're not tibetan uh, and so this is a very, very important time, I think, for us to to learn that. Yeah.
1: I think if I could just add yeah, um, of course. the teachings around being peaceable, friendly, and fearless. And that last word is really important. Just peaceable and friendly somehow seems to miss something. And it seems also to underestimate uh, the extensiveness of Terrible things. Like, for example, you and I were talking here um, at the end of May and just a couple of days ago in Minneapolis, Minnesota, in America, uh, an African-American man was just killed by four police officers uh, who refused to uh, get off him, and they killed him in the process. And he was just lying there on the ground with their knee in his neck. Terrible thing. So it's important to not, I think downplay these kinds of things. And and that's why that last word, fearless, is really important. There's a fearless willingness to see the way it is. To me, that's been really true about the Dalai Lama, his willingness fearlessly to name the way it is. I mean, he's been very skillful. He's walked an incredibly fine line over the years. And his own example, I think, um, has been one of the greatest challenges for the Chinese government. And I distinguish the government from the people and the and and their culture and their the the depth of chinese civilization and the the good things about it so for me that's very different from a political policy uh in any case uh you know he's been a very serious adversary and i think that if he had been easy to dismiss as a violent revolutionary it would have been a lot easier for the chinese government um but i think that uh at this time in which there's a lot of anger There's a lot of anger. I'm a fairly calm person. I'm angry about what happened to that black man in Minneapolis. I'm angry about um, the Trump administration. I'm angry about hypocrisy. I've had it up to here. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, And I have a comfortable, privileged life. So I think that it's important to really recognize what there is to be angry about and to be honest you know, about our own anger. And then the question becomes, what is our relationship to it? How do we practice with it? How do we practice with the conditions around us that do not change? And then how do we practice with the reactions within us that arise to those conditions and prevent the poison of hatred from entering all the way into our own heart? I mean, that's, that's and the key that. takeaway. And that's where the example of the Dalai Lama and the teachings of Tibetan Buddhism and the example of the Tibetan people, for me, are very important. Very important, useful teachings and examples for how to how to sustain that quality of peaceableness, friendliness, and fearlessness.
0: Thank you, Rick. I think now it's time to go to the questions from our audience.
2: So maybe Tencho. That's great. Can take the lead on that. Yes. Yes. Uh... Thank you very much. Um, And we have uh, lots of people watching us uh, online, many commenting. And I have a first question for you, Dr. Hansen, from Abigail Van Ellen Buram. Abigail says, Dear Dr. Hansen, while I've been a student of Tibetan Buddhism for many years, I've never been a strong meditator. I can't seem to get past the undertow of anxiety, which my particular life experience has left me with. Please comment on getting started and sticking with it. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you, and I'm sorry about the anxiety, and it's there, you know, obviously uh, as a response to what's happened to the person, it's very understandable. Uh, There are many uh, suggestions about this. Uh, I'll offer a couple. Uh, one is to look for what is reassuring. It reminds me of the saying from Mr. Rogers, the American television um, person who worked with children, that his mother advised him when he was upset to look for the helpers. In much the same way, we can look for what is reassuring. The breath is ongoing. The heart is still beating. The room that you are in is still here. Awareness is continuing Uh, the 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 love in your own heart is ongoing those who do care about you is it's continuing these are just different examples of things to be aware of that can help us feel more stable when we're anxious and more able to steady our own minds to move into a meditative space and what you can do which is actually really useful is to start to take the feeling of reassurance or protection or calming, um, all rightness, the sense of basic bodily all rightness as your own object of meditation. So that in effect, you're meditating on the observable fact in this moment that you're basically all right right now. Around the edges, for sure, worries, pains, losses, sorrows. But in the core, there's a fundamental all rightness. And then my suggestion would be, take a a minute, do it for a minute. I have a little practice, so I'll just tell you quickly. I call it three breaths. In the first breath, feel your chest as a whole. In your second breath, maybe with a hand on your heart, uh, bring to mind someone you care about, someone you like, someone you appreciate, breathing while caring. And then in the third breath, turn it around if you can and get a sense of, of someone who is friendly toward you, who likes you or even loves you, appreciates you, uh, breathing while feeling cared about. Just those three breaths, take less than half a minute and you can feel a calming in yourself as you do it. And then from there, keep on going, keep meditating.
2: Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Uh, now, one of our longtime ICT members, Victoria Huckenbella who joins us for every lecture when we have it in uh, person. So I'm glad she's able to join online over here. Victoria, hello. Thank you for joining us. Um, So she says, Victoria writes, Dr. Rick, I love your book, Buddha's Brain. I work with practitioners of Buddhism in prisons in America, and I invoke some of your insights with them. Often, a scientific approach can be more easily absorbed by them than a holy spiritual insight. I thought maybe you want to comment and make some remarks to Victoria.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, I want to add uh, also a little thing about the previous question, which is anxiety is uh, an experience we're having. It's like a sound that's passing through awareness, or it's like a sensation of pain in our knee. We don't need to push it away while we meditate. What's important is to not get hijacked by it and follow it or feed it. It's just there. It's okay that it's there. And then meanwhile, we keep turning attention back to what we want to rest our being upon. And in the process of resting our being upon it, we then increasingly develop that quality inside ourselves. And I think therefore, with regard to uh, the, the second question that came in, one of the most important things of all is motivation. There's a joke about therapists, uh, how many therapists does it take to change a light bulb? Only one, but the light bulb has to want to change, right? So motivation is absolutely central and the use of brain science and being willing to talk about what's actually changing in the body and to draw on, frankly, the authority of science in a secular country like America, kind of broadly, um, is really powerful to motivate people. So I think it's really effective for people to appreciate that whether it's for a minute uh, at a time or many minutes in a row, even better, you are actually changing your brain along the way, and that's a really, really motivating and useful thing to know.
2: On that note, we also have another uh, comment from a um, Aaron Lenhard, and uh, Aaron says, "I follow a different type of Buddhism. This past weekend." The theme of our discussion meeting was appreciation. It's very good to be reminded of gratitude and appreciation, especially when you feel like your life is crumbling. And I did find it lifted me up to be capable of handling the current issues. Mm. She says, thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you for that comment.
2: Then we have um, a question from Bruce Morgan. He says there is suffering and there is injustice. How do you distinguish these in terms of responding to them?
1: It's really profound. So I think of injustice um, like poverty or oppression as a condition, and we could say as well we could have health conditions. There's a plague moving through us. Someone could have an injury. These are these are these are conditions. Then there is our reaction to those conditions and it's interesting that the buddha made this wonderful distinction metaphorically between what's called the first and the second dart the first dart is the condition itself whether it's outside us like injustice or even a condition that's arising in our own mind in the moment let's say there's anxiety as the very first person brought up that is the those are the first darts of life the unavoidable inescapable physical or emotional pain these are conditions they're real they're not to be denied then there are the second and third and fourth and fifth darts we throw ourselves our reactions to these conditions so for example if with regard to injustice we fall into a sense of helplessness and immobilization Those are the second darts we throw ourselves that add to our suffering or if in reaction to injustice that comes at us somehow we blame ourselves or we blame the victim that's the second third fourth dart we we throw ourselves or if we get consumed and preoccupied endlessly with our resentments about the injustice the condition those are second third fourth darts we throw ourselves and the buddha's teaching was that most of our suffering really comes From those second darts that we throw ourselves. The conditions are to be practiced with, to be sure, and we should try to change them as best we can. We try to lift people up out of poverty. We try to help the Tibetan people. We try to go see a good doctor for our for our health problem. We we address the conditions around us as best we can, but as many have noticed, including myself, there's a limitation to what we can influence in terms of external conditions. but what we can always influence is the ways we relate to them. And we can gradually cultivate an inner shock absorber between us and conditions so that they may be unpleasant, they may be pleasant, they may be neutral, they may be heartfelt. Uh, but we don't have to react to that ourselves. We can preserve an underlying equanimity and an equanimous, resilient well being in our core and not get caught up in our reactivity to various things, which is such a major engine of suffering.
2: Thank you, Dr. Hansen. I think we have time for maybe one last question. Um, we have from Tenzin Lojue. Tenzin Lodu says, uh, uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you very much for this wonderful discussion. And his question is, what type of practice do you recommend after building that foundation of practicing awareness and mindfulness?
1: That's a very deep question. Um, <laughs> you know, for me, it's funny. I, I think what's really useful to practice is, has to do with the longings in our heart. You know, in other words, what calls your heart to practice? That's the most important practice. It's the one you will actually do. What calls your heart? And I think in us, our heart is called to feelings of calming, settling, and centering that have a sense of love and contentment and peacefulness in them. Not out of trying to fake that or force that, but rather more coming home to that underlying sense of peacefulness, contentment, and love. To me, that is a very fundamental process. Uh, From a kind of technical standpoint, uh, it's foundational to be able to steady the mind at least a little bit. That's why that's the first of the seven practices in my book, to be able to stabilize attention so when you sit down to follow your breath, you're not immediately distracted, you know, halfway through your first breath, you know, inhaling present, exhaling gone. Right now, you want to be able to steady your mind increasingly. So the the foundational trainings in shamatha and concentration these are these are just really really good foundational trainings. But then I think it's really important that a meditative practice be juicy, that it have an aliveness in it. And I think that's one of the wonderful actually um emphases that you find in the Mahayana tradition, including in in Tibet, this emphasis on loving kindness, on compassion, on bodhicitta, uh, um, and so that that's what I, or gratitude, that's what I would say. So if I were to really summarize it, I would suggest commit to meditating a minute or more a day, and then in your meditative practice, rest your mind upon what draws your heart. And as you rest your mind, rest your attention on what draws your heart, uh, you will gradually internalize that way of being and it will become the habit of your heart increasingly over time
2: thank you very much dr rick um on that note i think uh we're ready to wrap up uh would you like to add any last comments
1: oh if i may um i would i would say two uh one is uh, a teaching from the dhammapada it's a proverb i'll say it right now Think not lightly of good, saying, It will not come to me. Drop by drop is the water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. Gratitude, thankfulness is one way to fill ourselves with good. Respect for the efforts and examples of others, including in the face of terrible conditions, whether it's frontline healthcare workers and hospitals these days for the Tibetan people for more than 60 years. Uh, Respect for what others are dealing with also can fill us with good. And the last thing I'll just say in that spirit is that if we lose sight of the treasures that are guarded by the Tibetan people and protected and conserved uh, and uh, nourished, by, by them, uh, it will be a terrible, terrible loss for humanity, a terrible, terrible loss for humanity. I hope you will join me in witnessing the mistreatment of the Tibetan people and standing with them with a commitment to justice and um, <laughs> non-harming people. And then in all that, join me also in supporting the gray work as I clear my throat here, the great work of the International Campaign for Tibet. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you very Rick. Much. Um, Thank
0: you. I just want to to <coughs> remind our viewers uh, that you know you can learn more about you know Rick's work, uh, Dr. Hansen, as he's known professionally all over the world uh, through his website. He has also a wonderful newsletter. I think he send mm-hmm. every day. Uh, tips. Oh, once a
1: week, 150,000 people, <coughs> it's free.
0: So people can join on rickhanson.com, if I'm correct.
1: Rickhanson.net.
0: Net. Net. Sorry about that. But also I would encourage all of you to get this book. It's available on Amazon. It's a very optimistic book. It gives you uh, the tools to deal with a lot of anxiety, a lot of the issues we are all dealing with. Uh, so I would really encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity because we need to, to empower ourselves. And, uh, you know, uh, as you have heard today, uh, Rick has been doing this for many, many years, and it's a blessing for all of us to be able to, mm.
1: to share you, his
0: wisdom and, you. you know, and, and practice which have affected, you know, many, many people over the world with, uh, with all of you. So NeuroDharma on Amazon is available, easy to get. Thank you.
2: Yes. Thank you. Thank you both very much uh, for that. Thank you, Rick. Uh, And thank you, Matteo, for sharing the website because we still had more questions coming. So I'm sure viewers will join you online and uh, learn from you more. Thank you, Rick, for this wonderful, wonderful conversation today with us.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at SaveTibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit SaveTibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.